Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Elbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friend Giselle Donnelly. I'm also at AEI and Julia Zoza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Jamie Fly, the president and CEO of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Jamie, it's great to have you on the podcast. You've been running RFERL since 2019. You've been reappointed in 2021. Uh, I wonder how has the war that Russia is waging against Ukraine upended your own job and how has it upended, you know, the, the workings of, of the institution that you lead? Well, it's great to be with all of you. It, it's um, certainly reminded us on a daily basis of the importance of our work. Uh, we have journalists on the front lines in the line of fire, uh, many journalists working for us in Ukraine. Uh, we've had to move some of our journalists out of Russia given the closing space there for independent media. And although it's been a challenging period over the last nine plus months, it's also been heartening because we've seen audiences, including audiences in Russia, really respond to our reporting during this period, even as governments are trying to control the information flow about the war, as the Kremlin is trying to do in Russia. Audiences are finding new ways to circumvent those uh, efforts to block independent information, and they're coming to us in droves. And in Russia alone, our audiences uh, have, have roughly doubled since the start of the war. Uh, and that's with extreme blocking threats from the Kremlin about uh, consuming information about what's going on in Ukraine. And so despite the challenges, it's been a heartening period for the company and really reminding us of the power of our work and the impact that we can have on a daily basis, uh, despite those challenges. Maybe we can take uh, sort of one country at a time because our VRLs work in each of the countries in the region is really complex. And we've heard you offline um, over the last few months um, explaining in detail what the shortcomings are um, that our VRL is facing in, in many of these countries. And I think maybe the most intuitive place to start with is exactly what you were mentioning, Russia. Um, so to me, it's amazing that you managed to double the numbers um, because I know some of the shortcomings that you um, are facing over there and that Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty is facing. Um, could you talk a little bit more about what the feedback is that you are getting to what extent Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty is making a difference in bringing truth um, to a population that has been really brainwashed um, with uh, with Russian propaganda, um, how that works. And also, um, can you tell us a little bit about the um, hardships that um, Russian, uh, that RFRL Russia service journalists are facing to what extent they can still um, uh, operate or not um, when we're looking at Russia? Sure. I mean, I think Russia uh, is one of the most complex situations that we face across the 23 countries we operate in. Um, Vladimir Putin, for decades, well before his latest invasion of Ukraine, has been laying the groundwork for this moment where he could exert almost complete information control 
years ago, he started to focus on controlling the radio airwaves. He focused on controlling uh, TV broadcasts. And in recent years, really only what was left uh, for the independent media was uh, digital means of reaching audiences. And uh, we've had uh, great success in reaching audiences online. But as the war started, I think the Kremlin was nervous enough about their ability to sell this uh, unpopular war to the public that they took the next step of actually blocking sites for the first time, of blocking Facebook and Instagram and other uh, Western social media platforms that many Russians uh, were using to share and, and, and receive information. Despite that blocking, though, the positive news story is many Russians have found ways around uh, those tactics. They've used virtual private networks, uh, VPNs to access banned websites. They've used uh, proxy and mirror websites that we make available where we change the URL on a daily basis, sometimes several times a day to stay ahead of uh, the censors. Uh, and they've been willing to go to great lengths to seek out independent information. And, and so despite the hardships and the challenges, uh, the, the audience has continued to respond. Our reporting has had to change, though, on the ground. Uh, up until the beginning of the war, we actually had a physical bureau in Moscow. Uh, we were able to operate very openly in terms of the types of coverage we did. And now, while we still have some people on the ground, that physical bureau has been closed uh, because of pressure from the Kremlin and uh, efforts to force our Russian entity into bankruptcy. And the reporting we have to do uh, is very different. We have to be careful about reporting from the ground. We have to uh, collect information, share it with editors outside the country who can verify uh, and fold it into a larger story. Uh, and our, our people operating there do so at, at, at great risk, the, the remaining journalists that we we have on the ground. But we're committed to try uh, to trying to stay in country for as long as possible. When it comes to feedback, I mean, the audience growth for us is the best feedback and people continue. New audiences continue to come to us. But what we're also very cognizant of is the needs of the Russian audience are changing. The topics that they cared about before the war are different than what they care about now. Um, and while many need still to learn about what's going on in Ukraine and understand the consequences of this military intervention in their neighbor, um, we also need to make sure that we're reaching them with content that they're comfortable with. And when you can be accused of treason for denigrating the, the Russian military, some Russian citizens are not going to want to click on a story about what's going on in Ukraine. And so we're going through a, a massive effort here to refresh our content make sure that while we cover that hard-hitting news about the war, that we also have a diverse set of options uh, for Russians who want to engage with other types of content uh, in this difficult time and continue to uh, learn about topics that affect their day-to-day -day lives and the well-being of their families. And so we're making sure that as we adopt uh, new programming, that it's relevant for uh, a wide swath of, of Russians uh, and for that changing environment in which they live. Jamie, I'm interested in your views about um, you know, what I'll call sort of countries that are sort of caught betwixt and between for one reason or another. The, the sort of Putin info war method has been adopted in places like uh, Hungary and Serbia and, and so forth, where, you know, autocratic leaders are trying to also control the information that their citizens get. And then they're sort of you know, uh, countries that are Western-leaning or Western-disposed countries, I think about Romania, for example, and some of the other Southeastern Europe, 
European countries that are sort of in a contested space, and there's not really a strong central authority, you know, that that is pushing a line or trying to block a line, but it leaves them open to Russian influence campaigns. So if you could say that, that may be a lot to unwind, but that would be an interesting, uh, I'd, I'd be interested to know how y'all are, are addressing those kinds of situations. Yeah, it's an important question because I think what we saw at the beginning of the war was perhaps a moment of opportunity in some of these countries outside of Russia where the Russians had been very effective for many years at disinformation, at sowing information chaos. Uh, they had spent a lot of resources in a number of those markets. And at least my my take is as we watched the buildup and then the invasion unfold is I got the sense that the Kremlin uh, had to scramble in those early weeks and months of the war because not all of the Russian information bureaucracy really thought that Vladimir Putin would would actually invade Ukraine. And so uh, they didn't maybe have as much time as they would have liked to prepare uh, for the information environment that would follow a very controversial decision like invading Ukraine. And so at least what we saw is we saw a lot of those resources get redirected back to the domestic audience in Russia where the Kremlin had to focus first and foremost on preserving their control at home. And I think it did open, uh, it provided an opening in other markets, uh, partly also because in many of those places, which are troubled, uh, which have backsliding when it comes to media freedom, uh, which have political actors, if you look at Serbia or Hungary in particular, controlling independent media and being very willing to push a pro-Russian line, uh, the outrageousness of the initial invasion was so extreme that it was a, it was most likely going to be a losing argument in many of those societies, certainly in most e- mainstream EU countries. Uh, and in the hung- Hungary and Serbia case, I think those information actors had to, to go into overdrive and work much harder to sell this war to those audiences. If you think of a country like Hungary with legacy of uh, the Soviet uh, intervention in 56. Um, and there were still ways and they they did adjust over time and they found narratives and arguments that were anti-Brussels or uh, claiming that Washington and Brussels are trying to pull Hungary out of its preferred Orban neutrality into the, the direct military confrontation with Russia, uh, picking up on the recent issues with ethnic Hungarians in Ukraine and demonizing Zelensky for his handling of that issue. So they found their stories, but it took them a little while. And uh, it was only a select number of countries where I think the Russians realized that they had any possibility of advancing um, their narrative. And so what we've seen across most of Europe is them backing away from the fight and actually then redirecting to these opportunistic locations on the fringes, but then also in other parts of the world like Africa and South America, where they're much more likely to be able to push a compelling message. In response to that, just to conclude, we're making sure that even as we expand our offerings for Russian speakers inside Russia, we're also uh, expanding our efforts in almost every other market to provide factual reporting about what is happening in Ukraine. And we're well suited to do that because of our extensive presence on the ground in Ukraine. And everything we do there through our Ukrainian service gets translated, provided to all of our different language services, including our Balkan service that covers Serbia, 
Um, we're back in Hungary now. We're back in Romania. We're back in Bulgaria in recent years. And so we're able to counter a lot of that disinfo just through factual reporting that we can do firsthand from the front lines in, in Ukraine. I have to say on, 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 on that note that when, when Yulia and I traveled to, to Kiev earlier this year, one of the most striking experiences was actually visiting the RFERL bureau in, 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 in the city and learning about the various programs that, that your colleagues are conducting there. We had a long conversation with, uh, Stas Asayev, who I don't think is a sort of formally affiliated with, with RFERL, uh, but has obviously suffered in, in Russian Isolatia prison for, for three years. Um, with, we met with Tatiana Yakubovich, who is working for the, uh, for the Donbass realities, which, which is an extremely impressive project that sort of documents what life is like in those Russian occupied territories in, in Ukraine. And I think that's, that's, that's one of the most important antidotes that we have against, you know, this sort of idea that's, that's proposed either flippantly or, or seriously by people who say that Ukraine should just trade territory with the Russians and, you know, who, who, like who cares about that part of Ukraine and, and whether they're actually human, human beings living there and, and they can either live in a free society or, or in, in, in slavery. But one of the sort of impressions that we had was, was that uh, it'll be really valuable to get as much of this information out there, like in, in other languages as, as possible. Do you have the resources needed to sort of bring everything that's sort of being done in Donbass realities in terms of reporting and documenting Russian war crimes, documenting human rights abuses, etc., and, and and just getting it immediately into the sort of information ecosystem elsewhere, or are there bottlenecks that sort of prevent you from, from doing it on a scale that you would ideally like to do? Yeah, it's an important question. I, we, um, I think we feel that across our 23 countries and the 27 language we operate in that we've got this cover that, um, pretty much anything our Ukrainian service, we have a system internally, all the video, the reports that the Ukrainian service, uh, or current time, our Russian channel, which also has correspondence in Ukraine that they produce on a regular basis. It's made available to the other, other language services. They can pick and choose. They know their audiences. They can get it translated. And when I travel to our bureaus, um, usually our Ukraine reporting, even in a place like Bulgaria or Serbia, is some of our most you know clicked on contents, the content the audiences are interested in because others don't have such significant reporting from the ground. Where I worry, though, is getting outside of RFE, um, getting to the global audience, where I do think the information challenge is even greater. And that's where we just we do not provide news and information to people in Africa. Uh, we are a little bit in South Asia, but reaching audiences in India uh, or in China, um, those are the priorities of our sister networks. And we do share content with them as well. Um, but since it's other networks uh, who have other coverage plans, that's where we haven't completely refined what that sharing mechanism looks like and how to make sure that that amazing gripping reporting can go global uh, because our our mission is really to provide news information in those 23 countries, uh, and we aren't well suited uh, to take a lot of that reporting to global audiences. 
You know, Jamie, just for our audiences, I know you've heard this many times from me and from from many others, but I think um, it's important to underline here in the audiences what kind of legacy our VRL um, has and how much it still is perceived as doing an amazing work, you know, across decades. And now, for me personally, this has been um, you know, my parents were uh, in the revolution in Romania. They learned about the revolution starting um, from Radio Free Europe, just like they learned about everything else going on um, through that. And they listened quietly on one of those old radios to not be heard by their neighbors because it was illegal to to kind of maybe segue from this into giving our audience a little bit more of um of the an idea of how much amazing work um RVRL is doing in the in the region and how dangerous it is now it's um maybe you can talk a little bit about Belarus i know that you've had several um journalists that are imprisoned there um and we tend even on our podcast to not cover Belarus as much as we'd like to um, because of everything else going on uh, in, in the region. So can you give us a little bit of a glimpse into um, your work in Belarus and uh, what the risks are that people are taking there? Sure. And just on the the point about our, our history and legacy, I mean, we, we feel that every day here at Radio Free Europe. I mean, I routinely, as I get to meet foreign ministers and heads of state, I meet people who uh, have tears in their eyes when they meet me as they describe uh, either themselves or their family members listening to our broadcast during the Cold War huddled around, you know, usually one radio in the, the family living room. Uh, we hear those stories I see Dalibor has a Václav Havel poster over his shoulder. I can look out my window at Václav Havel's burial site here in Prague. The reason we're here and the reason uh, half of our staff here are Czech is all because of Václav Havel and uh, the the way that he felt about our work leading up to the events of the Velvet Revolution here in 89. Um, and so we believe deeply in that that history and understand the power of, of what we do. Belarus is a place right now that I would say is probably the most, along with maybe Turkmenistan, the most, and Iran, the most extreme environment we operate in. Um, and the sad thing in Belarus is it's happened, you know, just in the last two years. Uh, you know, two and a half years ago, I actually was visiting Minsk. Uh, the Belarusian officials at the time were talking about giving us more accreditations, inviting in more Radio for Europe journalists. Uh, but then obviously with the fraudulent re-election of Lukashenko, uh, that all changed and the protests that followed. Um, we were eventually forced out. Our bureau in Minsk was physically raided by the Belarusian security services, uh, who invited Russia today along for the, uh, for the, uh, the, along with the SWAT team, uh, as they filmed the destruction of our office. And as many of our staff had to flee Belarus, unfortunately, uh, three of them were detained. Two are still in prison. One, thankfully, was released in recent months. And so it's not just that criminalization of journalism, which ours are uh, two people now still in prison. And I think there are probably at least 30 journalists in prison in Belarus. But the more extreme version is even the criminalization of the audience and consumption of independent information. And that's what we're starting to see in Belarus in a way we have not seen yet in Russia. 
of if you visit a website and that website is found on your cell phone in your browser history, you can serve prison time. And we've had reports of people visiting Radio Svoboda, our website, serving 10-day prison sentences for having visited that website. If you send a news organization outside the country a tip, and we had a, a, a case where someone actually sent us some images and video uh, even things that we didn't use, that person was discovered and sentenced to prison for sharing information with a so-called extremist organization, which we we are in Belarus. And so that is a chilling environment where it's not just the inability to provide factual information, but the actual consumption of in- information is being criminalized. And you can imagine what that does to society uh, for those who remain uh, it limits their willingness uh, to engage with content, uh, requires them to go underground even more if they're independently minded. Uh, and that's a truly frightening scenario. And I think a worry that some of us have about where Russia might be headed if the Putin regime uh, feels so uncertain about its own future, they might actually learn from Lukashenko and apply some of those same measures in Russia. Jamie, I wonder if we could uh, sort of... Turn back briefly to the the question of RFE, RFL as an institution. You know, if you Google RFE, one of the secondary questions that comes up is, does RFE still exist? I mean, everybody does have these, um, you know, sort of uh, sepia-toned images of what the service did for people behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. Um, And probably... Uh, a lesser idea of uh, how much great work you're doing now and and what your am- ambitions are. I can imagine that your tenure has been at least in part one of reconstruction uh, as much as anything else. So if you could just, you know, give me a sense of your, your masters in Congress with whom you're deeply familiar, um, you know, respond to the, your need for resources and the opportunities in this, really hotly contested um, information universe that that you're fighting in. Uh, I think that would also be um, a useful insight. Sure. And I, I know, um, I know there is uh, a lot of that kind of, especially in the United States, um, questioning of whether we're still around, what, what our relevance is, what our mission is. I'd say the good thing is what I find in the markets where we operate very few people would be Googling, does RFE exist? Because they know we exist. They interact with us on a daily basis. I think the challenge we have uh, is thankfully less in our, our target countries right. where we do have strong brands that for the most part, people uh, know about and trust. But it's incredibly important that we educate more Americans about what we're doing um, now because ultimately it's the U.S. taxpayer that uh, funds us through the, the Congress. Um, there we've had positive developments even over the last year uh, even before the uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine we got our first budget increase uh in 5 or 6 years uh it was a 15% increase which was a shot in the arm just as we started to deal with a lot of these new challenges in Ukraine and Russia i've always been clear though with our congressional funders i don't think it's enough um we've been outspent not just us but all of the international public broadcasters funded by democracies have been outspent now for more than a decade, at least by Russia, uh, and we're being outspent by several orders of magnitude. That's not even factoring in what China is starting to do in this space. 
and looming on the horizon. And even though um, a lot of that challenge is going to be dealt with by our colleagues at Voice of America and, and Radio Free Asia, who actually broadcast uh, in Mandarin and Cantonese uh, and reach other parts of Asia, um, we're also seeing that influence in our region because we cover Central Asia, we cover the Balkans. Uh, these are regions where China is already certainly uh, becoming active in uh, through financial investments and influence, but also in the inf- information space. It's cultivating ties to journalists. It's setting up its own uh, outlets to share a Chinese vision uh, for the world with local audiences. And so more spending is incredibly important, especially at a moment, a pivot point like this, where I actually think we can go on the offensive and have some success. Um, given Putin's disastrous decision to go uh, into Ukraine. Um, you know, I, I think ultimately uh, we're on firm ground in Congress. Uh, we'll see as political developments occur uh, in the U.S., but I've been heartened since the start of the war by the congressional attention we've received, the interest, the support for our journalists when they're under pressure, and we need members of Congress to weigh in with governments that are harassing our journalists. Uh, we have um, no problem finding allies in the U.S. Congress on both sides of the aisle who care deeply about our work and care deeply about supporting independent information uh, for those audiences. The final thing, though, I'll, I'll say that um, always is an issue, obviously, when you're using taxpayer funds, is the question of what does the U.S. get out of it? And that's one challenge for international broadcasting. And we saw some of this debate manifest itself during the Trump administration Should we fund journalism just for the sake of funding journalism and supporting the truth? Or do we need to be spreading American values, American uh, explaining American policies, explaining American history and culture? And there's always a tension in U.S. international broadcasting about um, how much of each of those different things we should be doing. Radio Free Europe has a slightly different mission than our colleagues at Voice of America, who are supposed to explain America to the world. Um, and what we believe strongly is that what is most powerful is if we are doing local reporting, primarily about local and national issues that are not covered by other actors. Um, and even though we obviously cover what the U.S. policy is towards the region, we interview U.S. officials when they travel to the region, uh, we believe there's greater strength in focusing on those topics that people cannot uh, get access to information about in their local language from other sources. Uh, and we don't believe that becoming the mouthpiece for any administration uh, or for American policy is in the interest of expanding our audiences. I, I think that will, in most of our markets, get us rejected as just another propaganda outlet that's very similar to some of the propaganda that people see from from Moscow or Beijing. And this is such an important point because particularly at the time when uh, powers like Russia and China are engaged in propaganda disguised as journalism you know for a very long time people sort of thought that rt was just another news news station i mean it's it's, it's just so important to 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 make make the distinction and, and not to not to go anywhere near you know making propaganda and 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 and, and, and sort of pushing particular partisan or, or or ideological lines and and it has to be said that RFERL and Voice of America have done a very very impressive very impressive job at job, job at that Jamie thank you so much for for joining us today on the on the podcast and and I hope we can do this more often and to hear your updates from from Prague and and and, and from the region 
from Dalibor Rohash and my friends. Giselle Donnelly and Julia Zoza. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. Uh, we also have a Twitter account, which says the same thing, basically, Eastern Front Pod. Uh, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter through the link, which is included in the show notes for more content from the Eastern Front. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.